Happy St. Patrick's Day. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. Layla Tassi will not be on the podcast on Wednesdays. We'll have visitors on Wednesdays in the future. She'll be here the other four days of the week. How are you, Jane and Laura? Good. Fine. Happy St. Patrick's Day, Mr. Quinn. I'm wearing my uh, yes. St. Patrick's Day um, bobbly shamrock <laughs> headband. <laughs> I know. I love St. Patrick's Day. I listen to Irish music all day. Today, today I get the vaccine, and I got to tell you, I've been stunned by how much emotion I'm feeling about it at the end of this this long journey. And I guess, um, Jane, that's something you said you you felt, and Laura, you can imagine that we were We've gone through this very, very difficult year, and this is kind of a punctuation of it. Laura, you kind of compared it to running a marathon. Which I have never done, by the way, but I have done a triathlon, and my first one, I was thought I'd just feel elated, but I just broke down in tears and not even knowing where they came from. And I think it was the relief that not, like, I don't know if I can do this. I just want to finish, and I think a lot of people are going to feel that way. Yeah, I, I just, I'm struck by it. So we ought to... It's a game changer. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's the end. In, in 1918, there was no end. There, there was no vaccine. And so the pandemic just kind of petered out over a long period of time. But we get to punctuate this one. And, and we, we need to explore this in some stories. The, the, you know, Chris Wernowski told me yesterday that he had heard there are people breaking down in tears when they get the shot because they just feel that relief of the burden that they've been carrying for the past year. I wanted to add that I put up a story on cleveland.com yesterday asking people what's the first thing they're going to do when they're vaccinated, starting to get responses about, you know, hugging, hugging their mom, going to the movies, you know, going to the bar with their buddies or whatever. So if people have thoughts of what they cannot wait to do once they're vaccinated within reason, I don't want anybody breaking the protocol of the restrictions, they can email me at ljohnston at cleveland.com. Cool. Okay, let's start. When do people 40 and older become eligible for the coronavirus vaccines? And when does everyone else become eligible? Laura Johnston, we asked Mike DeWine last week, are you just going to open this up? Or are you going to keep going by categories? And he goes, oh, no, no, we need to go by categories. Well, at the end of this month, not so much. Yeah, it sounds like, right, by March 29th, everybody, you know, 16 and older will be eligible. Starting this Friday, anyone in my cohort 40 and over is going to be eligible a bunch of other diseases are included in that cancer, chronic kidney disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, heart disease, obesity. And this is an extra 1.6 million Ohioans that start Friday. And then the 29th, right, it's open to everyone. So he announced this at the Wolstein Center yesterday. And I think everybody was just like texting their friends like, oh, my gosh, this is so amazing. It was a, a really good moment. I thought it was very interesting that suddenly he added obesity to the classifications with some other conditions. Layla Tassi, our columnist and, and podcast regular, wrote a piece last weekend pointing out what she saw as a judgmental rejection of including obesity, even though the CDC recommended it as the most significant factor really affecting people. And she shamed the governor saying, you know, shame on you for not doing this. The governor had something to say that he didn't say effectively, that he had tried to address obesity through his age groups that that by by doing what he did, he vaccinated 90, you know, with people 15 over, he vaccinated 98 percent of the people that were dying. But, but then after all that, he added obesity. And I, I have a feeling that's Leila Tassi gets action. I, I'll take it right. Cleveland.com. We make it happen. But um, 
this is really, I think everybody's really looking forward to this. So, and, and the reasoning he said was that a lot of health departments said we have vaccines sitting. And you, I'm sure you've seen on Facebook, plenty of people who are under the age of 40 have been getting shots from no waste list that people are getting their calls saying we've got leftovers, come and get it. So I'm glad that people are getting vaccinated, but apparently it seems to be the rural areas more so have extra and they're like, open it up. Well, and and now you'll start seeing mobile units rolling into some neighborhoods where people are more challenged. So right, it, and it feels to be an increase too in what we're getting starting March 29th. Yeah, just it feels like we're 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 close to the end. It's uh, like we said at the top of the podcast. There's this sense of relief that we all made it through together. This communal sense of relief and joy. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How did Ohio's registration site for the coronavirus vaccine turn a whole bunch of people into liars on Tuesday? Jane Cahoon, this is sad because this was a big win for Mike DeWine. He is freeing up the vaccines to everybody as a Friday 40 and over. But to register for the days when they were eligible, they had to lie, which which is silly. And and yet the governor's office would not say it was okay. Well, yeah, as you might imagine, and as Laura said previously, this was such an exciting announcement that anybody, you know, 16 or older is going to be eligible in a couple of weeks. So tons of people immediately started looking for vaccines. But this relatively new website that the state is paying at least $3.6 million, you know, where you're supposed to be able to sign up for, for vaccines you know, both at the this eight week mass vaccination site at Cleveland State or or you type in your zip code and, and you're directed to other providers. Well, it's not set up yet to handle this younger group of eligible people. Apparently, that takes them a few days. And that was the justification for saying, OK, we're not going to start till Friday for the eligibility for the 40 year olds. But but anyway, there, there is a relatively easy way to get around this problem. And, you know, on the first page where they check your eligibility on the website, you just have to check that that you're in the 50 or older group because there's no option for selecting 40 or older or 16 or older. And then you can go on to the next page and be honest about your actual age and and sign up for an appointment for when you are actually eligible, not cheating, you know, but actually signing up for a date when you're in the eligibility group. So we thought this is raising a lot of questions with people. So we asked Governor DeWine spokesman Dan Tierney, hey, is it okay to, you know, technically lie on the first page to to get the, to the place where you can legitimately sign up? Now, I'm going to point out Dan is super accessible. He's a, he's a good guy and he, he helps whenever he can, but he just wasn't going to say, yes, you should be dishonest. You know, he wasn't going to say that. So he he didn't directly answer that. So the way he put it is that people who aren't eligible now can register, you know, for vaccine appointments for when they're eligible. And if they want to work to find an appointment, you know, they're not discouraging that. But he did point out, you know, it's not guaranteed that if you sign up before you're actually eligible for a future date that you'll be allowed to to get it. He said he'd heard anecdotal reports of of some providers refusing to vaccinate people who who lied about being eligible on their scheduling forms. But and then the vaccine queens got in on the act. The the moms who are who are trying to help people sign up, you know, they were trying to help people who were legitimately who would legitimately be eligible to sign up. And we know they think this website's pretty bad. So 
apparently they called the Ohio Department of Health to try to verify that people, for instance, who were 40 and older, who had made appointments for this Friday when, you know, the first day they would be eligible, that those would be honored. And they got a bit of a, they had a bit of a hard time getting a straight answer, but they said in the end, the answer was yes, it would be honored. So that's kind of the the yeah, sad I, situation. I can't imagine people are going to be turned down if they made the appointment for a day they're eligible. What was sad, and I, I talked to some people yesterday that were in this quandary that, that okay, there's lots of people signing up for these appointments that are available now. And if I don't click that I'm 50 or older and I wait till Friday, the appointments could all be gone and I might not be able to get in. So what do I do? I, you know, I'll put in my right birth date. It's for a day I'm eligible. And all we needed Tierney to say was fine. We haven't updated the website yet. You know, it's our fault. So it's fine if you do that. And as, as long as you get the shot and they're eligible. But when they, they said, that, yeah, we can't do that. We can't advise people to, you know, or he could have said, look, we're not updating the website because for the next two days, we want people 50 and older to have full access to this. Starting Friday, the availability switches. But for the next two days, we want the spots to go to 50 and older. He didn't say either of those things. With, which left people 40 and older in this very difficult quandary. So when they were asking me, I was saying, look, sign up, you know, click the button. You're honest about your birth date. You're getting an appointment when you're eligible. You're, you're setting yourself at a disadvantage if you don't. But it was sad that you've turned a bunch of honest people into fibbers to, to save their lives, right? Because that's what this is. <laughs> this is the life-saving thing that they're after. We're not talking minor stuff here it's not some beanie baby you're trying to get at a walmart <laughs> you're trying to get this shot that will preserve your life and keep you around for your family yeah and uh, you're not trying to cheat really can, can i add something and this is laura johnson laura johnson my sister has been really big on these all these vaccine facebook groups like she she's been helping people find stuff and you know they share so and so has appointments go on right now and that's the vaccine queens were telling people from the beginning that this is how you do it and like we've we've looked to them as experts right they're the ones who figured out around the system and have been finding thousands of appointments for ohioans who can't figure out and their you know rationale was that the technology hasn't kept up the pace of the changing eligibility and so yeah Laura, it's a really interesting hard, situation right how hard I would agree. it be to change 50 to 40 on the website i mean we're not talking right. advanced programming right. here. right a 3.6 million dollar website and, and you'd think since it's the state website that they know that dewine he could have given a heads up saying at this time switch it i'm going to make this announcement this wasn't like they couldn't have known it was coming but or yeah. say don't do it we're not going to accept it if you put in a birth date that is under 50 we're reserving these appointments for people 50 and older the problem was they wouldn't go either way they wouldn't right. say it's not appropriate and we're, we're going to not honor that or go ahead and click through they just played this game which i i just felt bad for the people that were that are largely honest people that don't want to click a button on a website that's not true to get the life-saving elixir that you know will and, keep you, and you're right and this that. was a big topic of discussion yesterday about like, what am I supposed to do? Is this okay? And it was on social media. It was on a lot of text chains. And you're right. It could have been cleared up really easily. But I think when you said, you know, that you advise people that this is, is the way, you know, you don't want to miss out on your life-saving shot, that that is the way a lot of people feel. Yeah, I, I, mean, I guess there was a third option. They, they could have uh, 
they could have just waited till Friday to to announce it if they didn't want people. Right. To exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Don't announce it till you're ready for people to sign up. Right. Or have the four. Yeah. Just have the four. The minute this came up with with somebody on our staff yesterday, I was like, okay, well, that's a story. Let's get that <laughs> because everybody's <laughs> going to be this, talking about that. This is the problem when you tell Chris Quinn your personal dilemma. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. that's a story. That's a story immediately. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We've been reporting for years that the bail system penalizes the poor, putting them at risk of losing their jobs, custody of their children, and the ability to thrive because they're kept in jail while people of means are let free. Now the ACLU says that the bail system hurts the poor in another very big way. Laura Johnston, what is it? Yeah, longer pretrial jail time actually leads to more likely conviction. So the longer you're held, the more likely you are to be convicted which is just mind-blowing, but makes a lot of sense. This is coming from the ACLU of Ohio, which analyzed data from municipal courts in Cleveland, Euclid, Franklin County, as well as the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas. And they released this analysis Monday as an addendum to a report they released last fall. That one had suggested that Ohio could save up to $264 million a year through bail reform because people would be spending less time in jail. But So that was more about greater society and, you know, taxpayer money. This is about the actual people who are, are sitting in jail. So a couple of crazy statistics out of Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Court. So the increased likelihood of conviction for certain felonies was 12% greater for people jailed pretrial for 14 days or more compared to those who are jailed three days or less. So 12% more likely conviction, 169% more likely to receive a jail sentence if their pretrial stay was 14 days or more, and 31% more likely to get a longer sentence than those spending three days or less. So this is, I mean, that, those are some staggering statistics right there. And there's a bunch of reasons behind it. The longer re- defendants remain in jail, the greater chance they are willing to accept a guilty plea. And because they're just, you know, they want to go home to their family, they're willing to make a deal. And it's harder to build a case from behind bars because you can't meet with your lawyer as well. The one thing that that I don't think I saw in the study that raised the question for me is, is it possible that, that the people who are kept in jail longer are deemed bigger threats to the, to the safety of the public because that's why they're being held. And so naturally they would get longer sentences because the early filter, a judge looks at the case and says, Whoa, 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 you're dangerous. So you're either going to have high bail or you're not getting out. That, that there's a judgment in that that then kind of correlates to, of course, they're going to serve more time because the judge looked at their early case and saw they were a problem. I mean, that's entirely possible. And it's it's a really good point. But I don't know how you control for that when you're you're doing a study like this. Yeah, I know. It's just it, it, it raised the question. But it, but look, it's clear we've reported this in every way possible. The bail system is unfair. It penalizes the poor. And, and it has to stop. And as we discussed earlier this week, the pandemic pretty much compelled county leaders to do what, what goodwill did not, which was to stop having bail, to let nonviolent offenders out on recognizance because they had to reduce the jail population. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. Who is the key figure in the State House scandal surrounding House Bill 6 who died in Florida, and what do we know about him? Jane Cahoon, this was a bit of a surprise because our reporters have been talking to him a good bit over the past few months. Yeah, his name is Neil Clark. He was 67 years old, and he was a longtime and 
prominent, very well-known lobbyist in, in Columbus. Uh, so he was found dead with a wound to his head uh, about 1130 in the morning on Monday near Ma- Naples, Florida, where, where he had a place. And a sheriff's report said a handgun was recovered from, from the scene as, as evidence. We, we don't have a, 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 you know, a definitive cause of death, but you, you could draw some conclusions. It's just, it's very sad. He was one of the four people arrested and indicted on a racketeering charge along with former House Speaker Larry Householder in the federal House Bill 6 investigation. And, you know, he was accused of being part of this massive bribery scheme that used more than $60 million in First Energy bribery money to get Householder in power, to get the nuclear bailout bill passed and and protect it from a, a repeal. So Clark was a close political ally of Householder. And, you know, this money, this uh, First Energy money that we talked about, flowed through these political groups and, you know, bought advertising and hired consultants. And apparently Clark was part of the attempt to to block this repeal of House Bill 6. He was involved in 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 that whole effort. So although a few others have pleaded guilty in this case, Clark has always maintained his innocence and, and vowed to fight this charge. And, you know, his attorney on Tuesday told the media that um, Neil remains not not guilty. He said, you know, this is a tragic loss for his friends and, and family. You know, we lost a good friend. So he did die with the um, presumption of innocence. Just a, a little more background on him. He, he grew up in Cleveland. He, he started his career in Ohio politics as an aide working for the Ohio Senate Republican Caucus. And then, you know, he rose to prominence um, as a lobbyist in the 19. 19- 80s. And, you know, he had dozens of clients, including, you know, powerful lobbies representing like alcoholic beverage distributors, nursing homes, cable companies, payday lenders. And um, you remember the controversial ECOT, Electronic Classroom of Tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but, you know, since he got arrested last July, his his work had pretty much dried up. And one other interesting fact is that he'd been working on this, what he called a tell-all book, detailing stories from his his career as a lobbyist. And he, he told a reporter last month that the book was near nearing publication. So no, no, it, 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 he sent pictures of it. It's done. Yeah, I've seen yeah. the pictures. It's a tell it yeah. was printed last November. So whether we're going to see that, that <laughs> yeah, I, I, whether we're going to see that, who knows, but yeah. it's just, it's a very sad, sad story. Yeah, it is. It is. It, uh, and you wonder what it means for the, uh, the government's case. You're listening to this week in the CLE. The University of Akron has had its share of money troubles in recent years, but it had good news Tuesday for the students who might be looking to save some money. Laura Johnston, what are they doing to help out their students? Well, they're going to make it a little bit cheaper, at least to stay on campus. So they will not increase tuition for the 21-22 academic year, and they're seeking to reduce on-campus housing costs by 30%. So that's equal to more than $2,500 for a student living on campus. That's a 9% reduction in their college costs, including tuition, fees, books, and personal expenses. The idea the president, Gary Miller, said is that they're trying to make getting a degree more affordable, especially for people financially impacted by the pandemic. Tuition for Ohio residents is actually not that scary from a parental perspective, $11,880. But room and board's about the same amount at $11,220. You do not have to live 
on campus your freshman year anymore. They had that rule and they're relaxing it because of the the pandemic. And last year they had increased fees by 2% for freshmen coming into the main campus. So it'll be a nice break for people used to uh, college increases. Yeah, I, I still wonder what the long-term future is for the University of Akron. I mean, they're, they're still having a massive amount of debt built up in the uh, 2000s and the 90s. They've gone through lots of, of changes. But making it cheaper does attract students, right? I mean, if you save 2500 bucks on, on room and board, more likely you're going to want to go there if your, your money is right. an issue. And you'll want to stay on campus, which... You know, the University of Akron has changed a lot since I was a kid in Akron, and it's much bigger and much more of a campus community than it used to be. But, you know, that's what happens when you build all those buildings and you put in a giant football stadium, right? Then you end up with debt and some, you know, they've been struggling in recent years. So maybe, maybe they're trying to regroup. And um, I mean, it's a, it's a decent school and it's a great option. So, but you're right with this pandemic, I think the future of higher education, we're going to be hearing a lot about it. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why was Samaria Rice, the mother of Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old who was killed by Cleveland police in 2014, upset by what she saw on the Grammy Awards telecast Sunday night? Blair Johnston, this was buzzing yesterday in social media and elsewhere. Yeah, Samaria Rice, she's pretty well known. She has a social media following, and she said that she felt some activists are benefiting off the blood of families whose loved ones have been killed by police and some that people are trying to gain fame out of it. So during Sunday night's Grammy Awards, there was a performance by rapper Lil Baby of his song protest, The Bigger Picture. The video opens with the reenactment of a black man being stopped and ultimately shot by police. Samaria Rice says she has no problem with the artist or his message, but she did have an issue with activist Tamika Mallory, who delivered a speech during the performance saying it was time we took a stand. And she basically, she called her a clout chaser in a Facebook post on Monday. And she said that Mallory doesn't speak for her. She said, quote, you're not going to continue to benefit of the blood of these families. If you're fighting for the justice of the families, make sure you've got the families on the front line. Don't make a career out of this when your loved ones aren't the ones who are killed. So I I think this raises a really interesting point. And you want support from everybody, but you don't want somebody taking away your your platform, claiming it. She came in to see us when we were working on our five-year anniversary project of the killing of her son. We did a week-long series. She came in to talk to us about about her five years and what she was trying to do uh, to honor her son. And and clearly, she w- was not happy with people who would try to use her son for their own purposes. She was she was very excited about the number of artists who have done art projects that honored her son, but that was largely with her cooperation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she, she, she did not like when people were doing that. And so she's been pretty outspoken about it, and, and that's what she was doing here. It's like, this is, this is not yours. This is not something you should, you should try to profit from. Absolutely. I mean, this is, she, she's his mother, right? And she has really worked hard in the years since his death to try to, I don't want to say make something good out of it, but, you know, to improve the world. She, they, they had a book that came out that like talked to kids about how to deal with police. And she's been very active in trying to make the world a better place. And I respect what she's trying to do. Yeah. We were all, uh, when we talked with her, uh, we were all very impressed with 
with how she's channeled all of that pain into something that will hopefully help others. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How does a good government group want to change the laws about what lobbyists have to disclose and why? Jen Cahoon, this is going to sound wonky, but it's not. It's not wonky at all. It's really kind of important. Yes, yes, it is. So Common Cause Ohio, which is a nonpartisan but kind of left-leaning good government group, says that the state needs to make lobbyists disclose their, their fundraising activities with the Joint Legislative Ethics Commission. That's the state's ethics watchdog. So right now, lobbyists have to disclose money they spend like whining and dining elected officials. And, you know, state campaign finance laws require political donors to disclose their name and address and employer. But those don't tell you how the lobbyists might be coordinating fundraising and donations for candidates. So uh, the example that they used was they they shared this October 2019 email that they got that was sent to members of Governor Mike DeWine's fundraising team. And so eight of those people are registered with the state to lobby the governor's office. So they and together they represented like 124 clients, many of whom have interests in things like gambling or utilities. Anyway, there, this message, that's, this email that they obtained, this fundraiser talks about seven upcoming fundraisers in Ohio. And if you cross-reference the dates of those upcoming fundraisers, you find that these events brought in more than a half million dollars for DeWine. So, you know, Catherine Terser, who's the executive director of Common Cause Ohio, said, you know, raising this money, it's a major way that lobbyists try to curry favor with elected officials. And, you know, special interest groups are looking for a way to get close to powerful officials like DeWine so they can inter- influence state policy. So she said lobbyists are lobbying state government because they want something. And Governor DeWine knows who helps him raise money for his reelection campaign. And so should we. Well, is there any chance that our very conservative legislature will pass this? <laughs> uh, probably not. <laughs> it's too bad, because <laughs> I, I think Common Cause has raised a very interesting point. Um, and, and it's really front and center because of what happened with House Bill 6 and all the corruption in the state house, the corruption that Bill Seitz still says there's no evidence of. So yeah. we'll see whether they embrace this or not. This reminds me of a case in the past where they had a controversy over strippers fighting for their rights. They, the legislature wanted to clamp down on any kind of touching or something. And, and one of the uh, uh, lawmakers, a humorous guy, came up with a plan to uh, let's prohibit lobbyists from touching lawmakers. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's do a short one. What are the chances the Ohio legislature will rename a state park for Donald Trump, even though the former president exhorted people to fatal violence in an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol? Jane Cahoon, this just seems too soon. Yeah, you know, but we have a lot of Trump lovers in the legislature, so I wouldn't be surprised if this happens. It's interesting that state park they want to rename to Donald J. Trump State Park is now called Mosquito Lake State Park. And it's in Cortland, Ohio, in Trumbull County, in the district of Republican state rep Mike Loychuk. He's sponsoring this effort, and he says the bill will help honor the hard work that President Trump did for Ohio and the nation while he was in the White House as the 45th president. 
there have been other efforts, like another lawmaker wants to name June 14th as President Donald J. Trump Day. That happens to be Flag Day as well as Trump's birthday. So, you know, that bill has like 11 Republican co-sponsors. I don't know how many the Mosquito Lake one has, but, you know, with this legislature, it's 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 a real possibility that thing, these things could happen. Well, if they do it, I have no doubt that a future legislature will undo it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay, well, I am off in a bit to get my vaccination. Thank you, Laura. Congratulations. Thank you, Jane. Happy St. Patrick's Day, and thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.